Rob, my first question for you is, I've always wondered about this because your, your book is about a story, which is, is a story which is now sort of enshrined in American musical culture. I, I, I came from a town that gave me nothing and this music was my lifeline. And then I became the captain of the ship that the lifeline was attached to. And I think it's an amazing story, but it's gotten to the point where the story is common enough that the thing that makes it unique is the execution and no longer the story itself. I'm really curious, at what point did you find out that your story um, was the story of an entire ecosystem as opposed to just yours? (laughs) I mean, I guess uh, I didn't really find that out until later, you know, I mean... I was just so, you know, in the early 90s, when I really got into rock music, it was so visual, like, you know, I I discovered so much through MTV, and when you saw, once you saw a band on MTV, they were already rock stars, right? They were already, like, either in LA or New York, and already cool, and already successful, and and I guess it wasn't until... That's hard to say, really. I mean, I guess it wasn't until I started traveling a little bit and meeting other musicians and, you know, I probably discovered that as as a lot of people did. I mean, and as as the more I got into old music, I mean, in old music, that narrative was was much more clear than in the contemporary music of my youth, like nobody thought Elvis came from Hollywood. Right. So when I got into old music, you know, when I got into old music and I saw these hillbillies getting into rock and roll, I kind of related a lot to that. And then, you know, as, as I kind of followed that path, I would meet a lot of people that, that were from places like I was from and maybe not as rural, but rural enough that, they saw that as a escape hatch that they could jump out of, you know. Um, and where are you from in Michigan? I'm from Ann Arbor, which is a unique place to be from musically because uh, obviously the, the the acts that have made it from Ann Arbor are well known. You know, everybody yeah. from Bob Seger to the M5, people like that. You also have a a, a college town that was it was less cool than it thought it was. Um, yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember growing. I remember growing up and and discovering, you know, discovering essentially pop music the way everybody else does. And this would be in the mid nineteen eighties, so that would have been MTV and Casey Kasem. Yeah, and I remember pop music spoke to me mostly because I didn't know what else there was, and I was just happy to have something that was my own. Was it a perfect fit? Eh, probably not. But like. It was the only pair of shoes I had, so I just I just left them sort of mold to my feet. Um, and then when I got to high school, it was I, I went to a small sort of tentious, arty high school, and I discovered kids. You know, there was one group of kids that were into the Smiths, and there was another group of kids that were into the Misfits and you know the Cramps. And then there was me, who was like, well, you know, the shoes are already on my feet. I, I, I kind of I was a little too scared to to try on a new pair of shoes. But I remember the sort of withering scorn for anything that was pop. And I remember thinking, well, you know what? I'm not the guy who's beating you up in the hallway. I'm just the guy who like found his pair of shoes and felt okay with them. Um, 
And so I like to say, I like to say I would have been punk had I known like that was a choice. Um, well, and to, and to be fair, if, you know, if, if I was a little bit younger, I, I might have I might have just stuck with pop music because at least the pop music in the 80s was was great. You know, I yeah, feel like yeah, no argument, no argument know, the, here on that. The pop music in the 80s is fucking incredible. The pop, I, I feel I feel like music kind of molds itself to the temperature of the tongues you know and yeah. in the 90s you know everybody was pissed off so the best music mm-hmm. was rock and roll but the 80s you know people were still people were still high from the 70s i think and the music was just killer so i, I yeah don't blame, i don't blame you one bit man i totally <laughs> uh, understand yeah and and the the kind of funny coda to that story is Flash forward 20 years when finding music, you know, largely thanks to technology, just became easier and cheaper. And I remember, you know, I remember being in graduate school at age, you know, 25, 26 in Austin and listening to Austin, you know, college radio and hearing the Dead Kennedys for the first time at like age 27 and, and being like, boy, this is a lot of fun. And boy, this, and I just thought it was, I just thought it was uproariously fun and hilariously funny um, because I wasn't coming at it as an angry 16 year old. I was coming at it as a kind of, as a kind of, you know, arch cynical 27 year old graduate student. Yeah. So to me, <laughs> to me, you know, yeah. it's exactly the same, no matter when I listen to it, but, but because I, I was sort of entering it at a different point in life, uh, I saw I saw Jello Biafra in the same com, you know same satirical comic vein that I think Johnny Rotten was operating on you know and, no, for and, sure. and he sort of segued into PIL yeah and and what's funny is like I I kind of had this the same thing happen to me with a lot of eighties pop music I mean I mean even the other day I was just listening to Echo and Bunny Men. Who I never mm-hmm. listened to when I was a kid, going, Jesus, this is awesome. It's so yeah. so melodramatic and so killer. And then, you know, I end up going through their whole catalog. And uh it's it's interesting when you can when you can take a step back so you don't have to live and breathe by whatever music you check out or you're into. And and yeah. so, so I, I'm totally the same way. I I discovered so much music in my mid twenties and late twenties that I may have been too rigid to check out as a kid, which is, which is funny. Cause you'd think it would be the opposite. Yeah. Cause there's something about the rigidity and the sort of blood oath you sign with music when you're young, that like kind of makes you interested in the first place. Yeah. Like, you almost, <laughs> you almost have to be that doctrinaire about it when you're 15 to sort of, you know, to sort of lose your, lose how strict you are about it with yourself when you're 25. You, you got something that lights the fuse at the beginning. Yeah, for sure. And I, I feel like being that strict about it is what helps form that identity with it. And then, you know, when you're comfortable with yourself and you're not going through puberty, it's a lot easier to to be able to, like, listen to a different band without thinking you're going to burst into flames or whatever, or all your, or all your friends are going to hate you and your girlfriend's going to dump you because you listen to a, a culture club record or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, 
<laughs> and now you, uh, and now you, you know, you go, you go to some used record. I, I go to Amoeba in San Francisco and I buy that culture club record and I buy the, you know, the re-release of fresh rotting vegetables. And I buy the, yeah. you know, the used Mahalia Jackson record and I, I stick them all under my right arm at the same time. And you set them in front of a clerk who's just a little older than you were when you <laughs> thought you would burst into flames. Yeah. And they look man. at you funny and, and you just want to be like, I indeed contain multitudes. Now ring me up. <laughs> <laughs> no, true, true story there, man. I, and um, what's funny to me is like, I feel like, uh, you know, your book's about 80s movies, which mm-hmm. I love. And anybody, you'd have to be a fucking Nazi not to love those movies, right? Like you would have to just be a heartless monster to me in my eyes. I don't know. Yeah, a really unhappy like a, person, definitely. If you don't like a fucking John Hughes movie, you you need to reevaluate some your life choices, but um sure. <laughs> um, so out of all the towns you visited, which one did you think was the most interesting? I gotta say, like I, I got to. I mean, it was a it was a unique set of circumstances, no doubt. But I got to I got to go to Astoria when the whole town was celebrating the um, the thirtieth birthday of the Goonies. And I, you know, I, I've always, I've always enjoyed the Goonies, but I didn't, I didn't live and die by the Goonies. And I, and, and the Goonies wasn't the reason I wrote this book. It was, it was a movie I liked, but I didn't, I didn't think much about it beyond that. Yeah. Um, and when you show up in Astoria, which is, which is like a mid-sized tourist town, it's about 10,000 people there. And the population is doubled in size and you walk around and you see like parents and children walking around dressed as the cast of the Goonies. And there's an 18 month old kid in a stroller, you know, wearing Corey Feldman's purple rain t-shirt and stuff like that. Um, that was pretty cool. And also how the town has kind of, how the locals in the town have kind of gotten used to this being um, uh, an event on the tourist calendar. Astoria, you know, Astoria has always been a tourist town. Um, I mean, not always, but really within the, for the last 30 or 40 years, Astoria has been a, um, a drop-off point for cruise ships from ESA. Really? So Astoria is, yeah, Astoria, even though it's in the far northwest corner of Oregon, practically on the Washington border, is used to, like, big boats pulling in come April and, you know, dropping off people from Thailand and Laos and Japan and stuff like that in town. So they're used to that kind of thing. The strange thing is, like, people from halfway across the world from all of these different nations by now probably seem less strange than people <laughs> from, like, an hour down the freeway dressed <laughs> up as, like, Ma and Ma, Ma for telly and sloth. Um, so <laughs> it was real fun to talk to a bunch of the old-timers. Around. I, I was on my way to breakfast one morning, and I ran into two people sitting on the corner in front of this bookstore arguing about, like, one guy was like, they're about the same age. One guy was like, the damn Goonies, you know, traffic's bad and everything's overpriced. And then there was a woman exactly his age who was clearly, you know, had clearly been there as long as him. And she was just like, she was just like, the Goonies are nice people and they tip well. And, you know, and Ken's Steakhouse has stayed in business all summer long, thanks to the Goonies. And, um, and, and because, and the other, the other big tourist thing, Astoria does is sailboat regattas, and apparently the people who come dressed as goodies are a whole lot nicer than the, you know, whoever the, whoever the people are who show up for sailboat races. I, I yeah. didn't know about the races, so I didn't know this. Like, <laughs> it was really cool to sort of I spent most of my time talking to the visitors, but it was it was fortunate that I ran into some locals and I got to see uh, what this 
really, I mean, weird ass event is from, from, from both perspectives. I mean, I can, I can only imagine. I think that's, I think that's so interesting though. And trippy. Um, cause well, I, I laughed, you know, when I first started in through your book, um, cause I saw you went to, to Lake Lore where dirty dancing was filmed. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I, and I had actually went there. I love dirty dancing. Like, yeah, I just fucking love that movie. Um, mm-hmm. And I went there once with an ex-girlfriend on a vacation. And <laughs> we got to the town and, and we were like, uh, whatever. And there's a little beach area where you can go swim in the lake. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, well, we can't really find any of the the dirty dancing spots. So we'll just, the whole goal was to go there and do the, like where he picks her up in the water move, you know? Sure. And sure. It, so there's families around and everybody, everybody's hanging out and we went in the water and, and tried to do that. In her and I picked her up and her top would come off. Oh, geez. And I was like, <laughs> oh God. And I always, I always think of that when I think of that place. But, but I wonder I if thought, the locals like. I wonder if the locals gasped, or they just like, "Oh, great! Someone else who came to town is trying that damn dirty dance." Can you? Yeah, I mean, that's what's in. That's what I thought was so interesting about the premise of that book, though, is because think about how many idiots like me go to that place and do the same thing. I yeah, mean, it, it yeah. must be unreal. It's a little bit like, like, I'm sure, like, like, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about your book and I'm thinking about how, like, I mean, it, it's, it's not, you know, it's not quite in the same musical realm, but I'm thinking about like when Prince died, like there was a certain percentage of people who went to like the gates of Pays Park in suburban Minneapolis and left flowers and stuff like that. And then a lot of people left flowers in front of the first Avenue club, you know, where, where Purple yeah. Rain was filmed. Um, it's almost like a, a place, a, particularly in, in in music, a furio, and it's not physical. A place fanned in for it. If the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame had you know ten percent more imagination than they than they have <laughs> now, I, I think they would like they'd almost like have a special award for venues. Uh, you think I mean, about, I you think, think that's cool too. Because you're totally right. I'm sure your history as a musician and a music fan is as much spelled out in places where you've seen memorable performances as it is in records you've owned and gigs you've played and and um, and you know and, and songs that have entered your life. I, I, For sure. You tell me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're totally right, and and honestly, a lot of times, you know through you know playing in a touring band for 12 13 years now i mean playing at certain venues can be just as much of a milestone as as anything else i mean even if there's five people there right like playing at the roxy or playing at you know uh, a certain club that has some kind of history or that maybe a live recording you dug was recorded at or somebody played their first show at, or like you said, where Purple Rain was filmed. I mean, when you get to go to places like that, it can hold as much 
magic as as a record itself you know um I, yeah. I mean we we recorded a my my new band the bad signs recorded a song at at um sun studios in memphis last year when we were going through and just just being there you know i mean the recording studio is just a normal studio but you know yeah. when you're in a room where they have an x marked off where elvis used to stand and a, a piano with this jerry lee's lewis burnis cigars out on <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just very surreal right it's just it, it it just adds some kind of magic to the experience and i think you're totally right i mean I think that would be such a cool idea. And uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, <laughs> I don't really consider them that on top of their shit, but, but yeah, I no, think that's a cool either. idea. <laughs> do, you have, do you have clubs and venues that are, are haunted for you, both in good ways and bad, you know, places that you perform acts for a second and third time, you're like, man, we had a really good show here last time. And I can just kind of feel the remnants of that in the air. Uh, same thing with like, Oh man, we had a lousy show here last time. And I, Definitely. I, I gotta like exercise the ghosts of that last time. <laughs> Tell me where some of those are. Uh, I probably have more bad ones than good. <laughs> um, one would be, uh, there's a club called the satellite in New Mexico and every time we've played there there has been first time we played there when we were playing a woman smashed a highball glass into a guy's face and broke his nose the second the second time we played there long story short (laughs) two girls got punched in the face and, oh it, and um it was just like it's one of those places that's just always a mess and um i always dread going back to like that we actively avoid um but there's certain clubs like um, the lost lake lounge in denver we've always had great shows at or like there's a club called um the whitewater tavern in little rock is this cool little club that you would never think anything of and you go inside and it's been built to look like the inside of a of a camp mess hall like a summer camp mess hall so they have like long tables and canoes hanging up and they always have just killer singer songwriters and blues bands and i've played in a punk rock band there and i've played in a do what band there and no matter what it's always an awesome crowd and everybody that works at the club is just so cool and and places like that that we're just excited to go back to do you see those on the tour <laughs> roster and your shoulders just kind of relax yeah i'm definitely like okay cool and i see certain towns and certain clubs that i'm just like oh jesus christ like bakersfield <laughs> like I can, there's certain places I can just go further than a club and be like the whole town. So <laughs> Bakersfield, I will always cringe at. I love San Francisco, though. Yeah, you guys always... play at the Hotel Utah here, and, and where else? 
Yeah, we played there last time, and we played at um, Bottom of the Hill a lot. And oh, I was, yeah. I really yeah. like that venue. Um, That's a great and venue. The Parkside, I think oh, we sure, played at sure. one time. That's a cool venue too. There's just the shows are always cool. Really, such a cool city. You know, it's such a cool vibe. It must be great yeah. living there. It is. I say, I don't quite know how because San Francisco is is the world's most impossible place to own real estate of any kind. I can't but even imagine. Somehow, yeah, somehow, clubs like the Parkside and and Bottom of the Hill have set up shop in neighborhoods like before they became cool. Um, yeah. And so somehow, you know, I, I don't know enough about commercial real estate to say, but somehow they they got you know favorable leasing conditions, or they or they were somewhere where you know, some developer didn't have an eye on their, you know, on their property, on the ground they were sitting on. Um, I mean, you, you know, the, the old stalwarts, the old stalwarts are great. It's, 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 you know, it's very special that a place like the Fillmore still exists when you realize, you know, how much musical history has passed through the doors of that, of that building. Um, but it's, it's cool that there is, that, that, you can conceivably still the Fillmore is you know the Fillmore is on a certain level and 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 you're you're only going to see bands that that can attract a crowd that is minimum the size of the auditorium but um, yeah it it's cool that there are still places on sort of the edges of the city that you can that you can see a band that's coming up or you can see a band that whose music is just it's just better suited for a, for a, a smaller you know greasier dirtier venue um i'm a big i'm always a big believer that uh the pairing of artist and and venue is really important and especially especially cool when it's unexpected like shortly after i moved here i managed to see the rizza from wu-tang clan at a venue that no longer exists called maritime hall which was, which was essentially like a converted vfw hall <laughs> and there was something and there was something about seeing him without the entire band, you know, without all 12 of them, just by himself, something super stripped down that kind of made the stripped downness of the venue, like the perfect pairing for that. And that totally makes sense. Big, yeah. I think if it was a big auditorium, I would have been like, well, where's everybody else? Like, yeah, no, no. He would have seemed a little I mean, naked up there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely daunting to get up on a big stage and have three or four guys and go, oh, God. Like, we've learned to just move everything. We're like, move everything to the very edge of the stage. Like, sure. But, man, that must have been a great show. I really was. It, it, it was. it was really, yeah, he had a, he got, he, came, he went on really late. And I remember it like, it was like a weekday and I had to go to work the next day. And I was really tired. And it was clear the crowd was like somewhere like edgy and pissed off that it was 1230 and he hadn't gone on yet. And, uh, and somehow it just, it, it, it just worked. There was a combination of like tough guys from Oakland and like hipsters from the mission and like, you know, like kind of snotty old school rock critic kind of guys who were yeah. you know, eager to lecture some 16 year old that like, you know, the Wu-Tang clan was better than whoever they listened to. You know, that kind of thing. And, um, and it just kind of worked, you know, it was a, a, a weird alchemy that, that all kind of worked on that Thursday night, you know. That's really amazing. In Nashville, I, I, I get a, I come across that stuff every once in a while, but not as much as you'd think. Um, 
But there's a lot of venues downtown on mm-hmm. Lower Broadway where the Ryman Auditorium's down there. And the Ryman Auditorium, quite literally, like the backstage has a door that goes right to the back door of like every bar on that block. So, oh my God. <laughs> so, and it's pretty cool because so many times I've been hanging out at one of those bars and seen anybody from, you know, like Carrie Underwood type people to John Prine or the guy from the Black Keys or whoever walk yeah. from backstage at the Ryman down there half drunk, you know, and get up and play a couple songs <laughs> and then and then walk back. It's really and it's it's really cool. And it'll it could be on like a random Tuesday night. They'll get up and do a Patsy Klein cover and walk off stage. <laughs> it, it's kind of like the rhyme is the heart and 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 the veins and the and the arteries kind of lead to these other clubs and then this you know the music is the blood that kind of circulates between them. Truly, it's it, it, it's pretty cool, man. Um, and the Ryman's incredible, but we don't we don't get shows like San Francisco does, which I could never believe. But I'm from West Virginia, so I moved here and just. Even there being a restaurant was like a big deal to me. <laughs> so I'm ha- I was happy so, with anything. So if an act is touring and they come, you know, within a hundred, you know, to, to you know the Midwest, Mid South, if if they don't come to Nashville, what's the closest? What's the closest sort of place they stop? Uh, usually Atlanta, um, mm-hmm. because like San Francisco is an A market for booking mm-hmm. agents. Atlanta's an A market, and Nashville is a C market somehow. So, oh, no, no kidding. But you know, I'm still, I'll still travel to go see a band if I really, really love the band. I mean, that my brother and I um, flew up to Chicago about this time last year to see the Misfits do a reunion oh, show, and then flew back the next day. I mean, like to me, it's, it's worth it. Yeah, they, where they, they played at the Metro in Chicago, right? They played outside at um, at this festival called Riot Fest, oh, and it was sure, sure. And it, it, it honestly was a disaster. I mean, we were so excited to go up there. We got there and we were like standing right in front of the stage. They were the last band to play, and we were like, "We're not moving. We're staying right here the old day." And we did. <laughs> yeah. And then right when they went on, it was like like every gas station attendant from every gas station in every small town has congregated mm-hmm. on this show with the intent of just going completely apeshit when the Misfits play. <laughs> and, and, and that's what happened. And, and we knew like half a song in, we were like, oh, God, we're so screwed. <laughs> <laughs> so we're like, we got to get out of this. We got to get out of this. And then the people beside us were trying to get out of the crowd and the guy was with his girlfriend and he was like, please move. She broke her leg and somebody's like, fuck oh her God. and threw her down. And we were like, oh my God. So, so yeah, I forget that I'm not 16 anymore sometimes, you know, until I get out there and I'm like, nah. At some point, like the stuff that like you just thought was either cool or or part of the deal of seeing your favorite acts play, it's just like at 
at some point when you're, you're, when you're not sick anymore, it's just distracting. You're like, you're you know, right. I, yeah, I, I'm here to, I'm, I'm here to listen to great music, you know, and, 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 and you, you know, you pushing me or me standing knee deep in mud. It, yeah. It's not atmosphere anymore. It's the <laughs> way. Like, yeah, you're <laughs> so right. I, I know. And, and, uh, and it's, it's weird. Like, and, but I'm, I'm at that point for sure. I, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm happy to like, I'm I'm even happy to stay in the balcony half the time, which I used to would oh. never do. But no, I don't um, know. At some point, you're like, someone's going to catch me here, and I'll and yeah. stand in the balcony and <laughs> and you know, give me a, give me a give me an untouchables tattoo or something like. Uh, and I, yeah, I like I I'm 43 and um and. I'm at the point where if I'm going, I mean, I, I probably have less endurance than you as a touring author than a touring band. Like I, it's just <laughs> less is required of me when I, when I touch down in a city, but like I'm at the point where if I have to perform and I'm using performing quotes here, like I'll, you know, I'll drop down in Tulsa or Louisville or Cincinnati or wherever it is. And I'll do my thing. And the stuff I just used to think was charming about that. You know, now I'm like, strip out everything except what I'm here to do. And once I've done it, we can talk after that. I feel that way as an author and I feel that way as a music fan. Like I, I've been to Riot Fest a couple of times because my best friend lives in Chicago. And that is a festival that gets incredible bands and the kind of the kind of nitpicky stupid stuff about putting on an event they have never managed to get right. I know. And like I when I was sixteen I didn't care or I didn't notice. And now I'm like, the fact that I've been standing here for seven hours and I've heard great music and yet I have to walk three miles to like, <laughs> get my first meal of the day. Like, it's, <laughs> it's just not cool. Like, it's, I, not, I, it's I, not charming. It's not, <laughs> I feel it doesn't you, make 100%. me feel like, yeah, like this experience is more authentic. It's just, it's just distracting me from what I came for. Like, I know. I'm, and, and festivals especially, I mean. I'm at the point other than other than that special circumstance like I <laughs> I, I dread music festivals and yeah. you know also I remember the last time we did a uh, warp tour I mean the just the mm-hmm. commercialism of music festivals I mean it's all commercialism but like music festivals everything is to an extreme you know every yeah. aspect of it from the music to the crowd to the the commercialism. Mm-hmm. So last time we did Warp Tour, I mean, they were charging like at least $5 for a bottle of water. Two kids had already died that summer from dehydration at the shows. Mm-hmm. And then and then I'm backstage and I realized that all the band water is in Monster Energy drink packaging. <laughs> so... <laughs> when the 14 year old kids in the crowd see a band they like on stage guzzling water, they think they're drinking monster energy drink. And I was like, yeah, I was like, that's sick. Like that's, that's just wrong, man. Like, and, um, I don't know. It wears me out. But as, as long as I'd never become the person that leaves before the encore to beat the traffic, then I'm then I'm good. Like as long as yeah. I never as long as I never get that lame, 
then I can live with being the pariah up in the fucking balcony. Right? <laughs> I would way rather do that. <laughs> you want to hear my 43-year-old workaround to that? Yeah, lay it on me. <laughs> okay, it's one of two things. A few years ago, my brother, my brother says, Kevin, it's your 40th birthday, and uh, Iron Maiden is playing at uh, Shoreline Amphitheater three days before your birthday. I'm going to come out and buy you tickets, and we're going to go. I wasn't really thinking about going to the show, but I'm like, if I'm going to go see Iron Maiden and someone else is paying for it, and like, yeah, sure, yeah. why not? And it was a fantastic show. And like, as we were getting ready, my brother handed me a piece of paper and he's like, go park in the premiere lot. And I'm like, what? And he goes, oh, yeah, I paid for premiere parking. I'm like, what are you doing spending $40 on that? And he goes, trust me. I pull into the premiere lot. I'm about to go find a parking space. And he goes, no, 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 park right here by the exit door. And, uh, I went, all right, you seem to know what you're doing, and I don't. So uh, we park by the exit door. We go see the show. We have a fantastic time. We stay till the bitter end. And even though we stayed till the bitter end, we walk across the lot, and while every other fool is trying to get out, we're parked three feet from the exit. So, <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so out we go, and, you know, in 10 minutes, we're on the road driving with the windows down and the radio on. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, if I can, you know, if I can, if I can stomach it, that's one hack. The other one I do is if I'm at a show that's local, if I'm at a show in San Francisco with the encore start, I'll call a cab on my phone and, and I'll be like, when you pull up, if I'm not there, just start the meter. Tell me what your <laughs> cab number is and start the meter and they'll start the meter. And if I've timed it correctly, encores happen, band goes off the stage. I head out the door and there's my ride home. See, that's, that's, that's a pro move. That, that is really smart. <laughs> yeah. From, from 30 years of, of, you know, 30 years of making mistakes and being, and being, uh, you know, stuck in long lines trying to, trying to get out of a venue when all is said and done. Um, I, I feel you. Um, oh, yeah. hey, I, here's another question I wanted to ask you because I'm currently yeah. kind of in the midst of it. So as somebody that, has, has written about movies. Have you ever thought about writing a screenplay yourself or have you? Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten, I've gotten asked that a couple of times. Fiction is definitely not my strong suit. You know, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of more comfortable heading out into the world, seeing what has already happened and then reporting back and trying to, trying to make sense of it in my own way. For sure. um, but I do, I, I do think like sometimes like I, I have had ideas where, and strangely enough, they often come from music. You know, you, you, you hear a great song that tells a story um, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, if I could stretch that story beyond the three minutes of the song, where does it start? Where does it go? Where does it interact with the narrative of the song? And where does it end up? And yeah. you know, a great song has all those things in it, but it also, you know, sort of stokes your imagination to think about it bigger than that. So, yeah, I've um, I got a couple of screenplay ideas. I don't. I don't see them as like the first priority of my creative life, but I think what I'll do is when I start on my next book, I will have a couple of those screenplays. I screenplay ideas kind of sitting in the inside pocket of my jacket, and on days when I'm not feeling particular create particularly creative when it comes to the the primary thing I'm working on, I'll uh, I'll put the screenplays on the workbench and and you know bang at them for a while. See, that's a cool idea, and and I do that kind of thing a lot too. You know, I I feel like switching gears like that helps creativity get kick started again. You know, when things are being stale. Yeah, I, 
I, I think it's important. It's important to have like, it's important to have those different gears or else yeah. you're just kind of, you know, you're just kind of spinning your wheels in the mud because you, you keep doing the same thing and it's not, you know, <laughs> and it's not getting you unstuck. Yeah. I, no, I feel that completely. Um, I, I mean, I actually just started working through some screenplays and just the format is definitely kind of fun to work with and way easier. I was like, God, like, no wonder these these guys just do coke and drink Starbucks all day and <laughs> hammer this out in two weeks. There's a speed to movies that you can't like, that you don't really have to pay attention to when writing a novel or a, or a nonfiction book. Like, nonfiction yeah. book, you're like chapter seven, you know, maybe chapter seven will be 85 pages and chapter eight will be six, but like... But you just don't have that, you know, there's, you don't have that option in a screenplay. Like, you, every scene's got to get you to the next one. The true talent, I feel like, after, you know, meeting some people in the movie business is not, is being able to write a screenplay under the guidelines and standards of that business and have it be good. <laughs> you know, I mean, when they're like, why would you work on this? We could get somebody to bust this out in four weeks. And it'll be a hundred pages. And I'm like, well, that may be true, but that's insane. (laughs) And um, I feel like even when you think back about those 80s movies, like when I started reading screenplays and I really realized how much of the movie is in the screenplay, I mean, especially in the 80s and 90s, which those were the screenplays I gravitated to because those were the movies that I really loved. And um, yeah, there's so much direction and so much detail in those old screenplays that you're really like, God, the writer should get so much more credit for this. I mean, it's really incredible. Yeah, and it's what's that line that Louis Armstrong said? Like, the greatest lesson I ever learned was knowing when not to play. Um, <laughs> like, I, I think you've got you know you've got sort of the more in front examples of great screenplays from that time, you know, the richness of John Hughes's dialogue and like, and, uh, you know, same can be said for Cameron Crowe's screenplay for Fast Times at Ridgemont High and, um, and Daniel Waters' screenplay for Heathers. I mean, those screenplays were just every line is more quotable than the one before. And then, you know, quite the opposite, but definitely related is, is, you know, like Alex Cox's screenplay for Repo Man, which, yeah. um, which it has got a couple of great monologues in it, but it's largely very fair and sort of is aware that it's, that it's a dark comedy and therefore the screenplay, you know, the screenplay uses the silences to kind of boost up the jokes. Like my favorite, my favorite joke in Repo Man, which is not the one that like most people say, but my favorite joke is the scene near the end of the movie where they go into the hospital and nobody says anything, but you hear the announcement over the speakers like, please be quiet, patients entering intensive care or something like that. <laughs> and then a half a second later, there's, there's this hail of machine gun fire. <laughs> and it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a hilarious moment, but it only works because Alex Cox was like, the joke is only going to land if, if that announcement comes from the atmosphere of the scene and not someone <laughs> saying it. If, sure. some, if one of the characters had gone shush and then you had heard machine gun fire, you would have been like, oh, that's just, that's just a dumb gimmick. Like, yeah. um, it's the <laughs> unexpectedness of it, which makes it so funny. And, and it's unexpected because the screenplay pulls back 
where it completely could have could have sort of overwritten and predicted the joke. Um, but you're right. Um, yeah, it's it, it's two very different kinds of screenwriting, and, and you, you can you can see how many how many sort of different kinds of super talented people do it well. Um, I, I don't know if I find that refreshing or intimidating. I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> I, dude, I know. So this is funny. I saw a um, musical adaptation of Heather's last year. Oh like, yeah, on, yeah, on stage, which was mm-hmm. which was great, and the theater company mm-hmm. did great. They cast this dude for Christian Slater's role, mm-hmm. who was. I love when they do alternate casting, right? Like I, I love going mm-hmm. to plays, and they go, "We're just going to cast this completely." different than what people are going to expect so the cast yeah. for christian slater's role was this black kid with dreadlocks who was as muscular as the rock and there about, you go. <laughs> about seven feet tall right there you go which which i'm like cool but he <laughs> he still wore a trench coat and did a Christian Slater impression the whole time, <laughs> like oh, the voice, the fantastic. the voice, you know, like the the walk, the kind of slouched walk. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, this is this is insane. <laughs> I mean, it yeah. was it was wild. The, um, yeah, you li- had to give it to him. I mean, people people ask me a lot, you know, like, like, does it make you mad that they made a musical out of Heather's? That they want to make a musical out of Valley Girl, or they remade the Karate Kid, or this and that? And it's like, it's like, I mean, hey, you know, first of all, if it does, I just won't bother with it. And B, it's like, well, it depends on like how it depends on how creative you are with it. I yeah. mean, did did anybody look at Lin Manuel Miranda and say, you know? quit remaking the story of the founding fathers. You know, we've heard it all before. Um, no, they said, <laughs> they, they said, good for you for imagining the story, the story of the founding of America should be played by entirely non-white actors. Like there's something to that. I, I feel like it's almost the opposite with remakes, though, especially eighties remakes, because I feel like yeah. the big disservice is the music. I mean, the music yeah. sets the vibe like it sets the vibe of nostalgic. It makes you feel nostalgic the first time you watch it, even if you yeah. don't know what you're nostalgic about. You know, yeah, it just exactly. it sets this beautiful, longing kind of vibe. And yeah, it I, I feel like it kind of it sucks for kids because they're done a disservice by being able to see the new. I actually went on a date with a girl that was working costuming on the. Um, Dirty Dancing remake that's about to come out that's mm-hmm. a musical and yeah. she was just like dude it's such a shit show like you have oh, it's God. like starring um so I was like oh that's so cool right you're working on mm-hmm. the, dirty, the Dirty Dancing remake and then she was like well it's starring uh the Pussycat Dolls and um, <laughs> the girl the girl from Little Miss Sunshine is the lead yeah and I was like hmm cool <laughs> Awesome. I, I don't know if you're if you're doing a remake, if you're doing a, a pretty close remake of something, and it's it's a movie from that time that had a fantastic soundtrack. You know, be it Repo Man, be it House Party, or be it Dirty Dancing for that matter. Like, 
why not just, you know, if you're doing a remake and the soundtrack was successful the first time, why not just leave it alone? Or why not remake it in a way that does something interesting with the music while still retaining, you know, something of its original soul? Right? See, that would be cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it would be really cool to see to see young punk bands take on the Repo Man soundtrack, punk bands that were inspired by TSOL and the people on that soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, or, man. Yeah, or young hip-hop producers using samples from the original House Party soundtrack to remake the House Party soundtrack. Like, you know, you and I aren't movie producers, but like, you know, we, we, we threw... We threw sprinkles of imagination at it and here we are like <laughs> uh, yeah I know. it doesn't take much you know I, and um, that's that's the trouble i feel like I, I had a friend actually that was telling me how nothing was getting made like they won't even take chances on original scripts it has to be a remake or whatever and and we had a running joke where we were going we should just pitch remakes of 80s movies that bombed like Hudson oh, yeah. Hawk and shit like that, and see if uh, yeah. see if they pick it up just because it's a remake. Like, and they don't oh, yeah. care. Yeah, and I'm that's gonna, that's I, what sucks. You should think about doing that. <laughs> I should. I'm gonna say I need 120 million dollars to <laughs> yeah. redo Streets of Fire, which didn't make six <laughs> cents the first time around. <laughs> yeah, with the uh, and then give them a totally alternate cast, and it's a musical. Yeah. And I think that's genius. Right. Yeah, the cast is entirely. You were just going to pluck the cast from Tangerine. The cast is going to be entirely <laughs> Latino trans people. <laughs> oh um, yeah, <laughs> one hundred and twenty million dollars, please. <laughs> hey man, you find the right producer and you have the right drugs and magic can have in Hollywood. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's what you know, I keep telling myself. <laughs> <laughs> Words to live by. <laughs> <laughs> I know, man. You gotta get going in a second, but tell me, tell me sort of where you're, where you're headed next with this thing, and then, and then once it's done, where you're uh, headed next, creatively speaking. Well, right now I'm actually, um, I'm actually working on getting the movie rights to Die Young with Me sold, and um, excellent. Working on a screenplay for that. Um, cool. And I have a couple studios into it, and I'm. I'm kind of just doing the whole song and dance and I'm working on a yeah. new book right now. That's another, this book's fiction. It's another coming of age book about um, a kid who's during Vietnam, 1968. And this kid's brother's mm -hmm. just been killed in Vietnam. He's about to be eligible for the draft. And it's about him and his friends trying to figure out how to get out of the draft without being caught for dereliction of duty. Um, I'd read that. It's been interesting researching, you know, just mm -hmm. the crazy shit people would do is just, it, it amazes me every day. I wonder if I would do it, you know? I mean, people paying off their thumbs and stuff. Like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know which makes you braver, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> I know the Allman Brothers each shot themselves. They both shot themselves in the foot to get out of the draft yeah. and I, I thought that was pretty amazing you know but then once people kept doing that kids had to get more creative or they would go to jail so what yeah. about you man what are you working on 
I've got, you know, I, I'm, I'm spending some more time in, in, in Brat Pack America this summer, and I've got a, given how much enjoyment I've seen people get, you know, this, these teen movies, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, trying to find the perfect, like, X, Y of what I want to do next and what, and what that community is that, that has sort of formed is interested in next. You yeah. know, whether it's a book about 90s teen films or a book about 80s TV, um, or it was such an interesting, pivotal time in American popular culture. And while I don't want to be, you know, the 80s guy forever, I, I feel like there's a lot of great stories left to tell from, from that period. And just a lot of enjoyment to have with people hearing their stories, too. So um, I'm sure I, I think I'll probably I'll probably spend the rest of the year trying to figure it out with the hopes of like, you know, being able to fire the starter pistol come January and start something else. I, I think that's so cool too. I mean, I mean, truly, the the '80s and, and early '90s are the were the last time that people weren't uber connected like we are now. Yeah. And I feel like there's such magic in that that even yeah. you know, you like you said, people just get a smile on their face even thinking about it, even if they weren't there. I mean, because there's yeah. there's such there's so much romance in it. The the yeah, I can only imagine how many stories are left to tell, and uh, I look forward to reading them, man. I, I really I love the book. Well, same here. I was really happy to to become acquainted with you and you with your book and and this this sort of period of time that we were both living through, but we were on on different tracks. I, I feel like books like yours have enabled me to uh, to sort of look across the high school cafeteria and see the lives <laughs> of people that I knew were living, and I, I think that's a, a real gift. So thank you. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Thank you, man. Nice talking to you. You too.